I'm Russ Portnoy from the MJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care, and I'd like to welcome you to the final professor's rounds in the 2017 MJHS NHPCO Interprofessional Webinar Series in Palliative Care. I'm really delighted today to introduce to you an old friend, Dr. Eduardo Guerra. Dr. Guerra is the F.T. McGraw Chair in the Treatment of Cancer Division of Cancer Medicine and the Department Chair for the Department of Palliative Rehabilitation and Integrative Medicine in the Division of Cancer Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Dr. Barrera is also the Professor of Medicine in the Department of Palliative Rehabilitation Integrative Medicine at MD Anderson. Dr. Barrera is an internationally renowned specialist in palliative care. In 2013, he was named one of the visionaries in palliative care by the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. He's the recipient of the Academy's Lifetime Achievement Award and the Lane Adams Quality of Life Award. He has received numerous other awards in recognition of contributions to palliative care program development, education, and research, and was honored by the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians with the establishment of the Eduardo Barrera Award as a career award for palliative care specialists. Dr. Barrera has educated hundreds of specialists in palliative care and has made great contributions to the worldwide advancement of the field. His work has supported the establishment of numerous palliative care programs in Latin America, India, and Europe. He is a past president of the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care. Dr. Barrera has made enormous contributions to the evidence base for the clinical practice of palliative care. His research interests have touched every domain, particularly the assessment and management of the physical and psychosocial symptoms in patients with advanced illness. He has been extraordinarily productive and has published more than 1,000 papers and chapters and edited or co-edited 31 books. We're very delighted today to welcome Dr. Barrera to Professor's Rounds. His topic today will be screening, diagnosis, and management of delirium in palliative care. Eduardo. Thank you very much, Russ, for this wonderful introduction that I wrote for you 15 minutes ago. I have to say that I've stolen that joke. That belongs to Russ, but I find it that always it works very well. Uh, it's, uh, I've shared with Russ many, many years and, and many events uh, throughout our careers long enough to allow us to occasionally go back to a paper we published 25 years ago and say, oh my goodness, how could we say that then? So uh, I hope you will uh, take advantage today of some discussion that will be up to date about what we need to know I have no uh, um, major uh, financial uh, disclosures today, and I would like us to reflect about this patient I saw some time ago. This was a cancer patient who had prostatic cancer, uh, fatigue, cachexia, uh, pain related to bone metastasis, and all that happened in the context of the beginning of brain failure, the beginning of cognitive failure. So the problems in the patient are multiple, and it does happen predominantly in the brain. I spent many years trying to figure out the pathophysiology of independent symptoms, and then we started learning that in reality, whether it is the cancer, the heart failure, the COPD, it talks to our brain. And a lot of the problems happen centrally because of that. The way it talks is through somatic and autonomic nerves, tumor byproducts, and also post-immune reaction, and all that causes these syndromes among delirium, and delirium being one of them. It is global brain failure. It's the way most of us here will die. So it is a big problem. It's the most common neuropsychiatric complication. It is distressing. It's associated with poor prognosis. Even when an episode of delirium gets much better, there still will be much worse prognosis, and it has bad impact on the way we express symptoms and communicate. What is delirium? Well, the, the first bullet gives you the most important aspects. Confusion with regards to uh, time, space, recent memory. This confusion leads to inattention. The person does not pay attention to what we're telling them. There are hallucinations, especially tactile. Bill Breitbart taught me that many years ago, that uh, it's not so much visual or, or auditory, it's tactile, delusions, agitation, and disinhibition of symptoms of emotions. All those are the icing in the cake, but confusion and inattention are the main components. These wonderful papers done recently 
by this uh, interactive group uh, published in JPSM are uh, are still up to date and they still provide wonderful background for what we know about delirium. Now it is the way in which we are going to die and some of us will go predominantly hypoactive, some of them will, us will go predominantly hyperactive and so there are two major disorders of cognition. Delirium that is usually uh, you know uh, fluctuating and potentially reversible and dementia that is the intellectual deterioration and the differential diagnosis is generally quite easy. What might be a bit more complex is the addition of delirium to a pre-existing dementia. So the differential diagnosis, dementia easy, sedation due to opiate, somebody might be slowed down, obstructive sleep apnea, sometimes occasionally that be confused, depression. Now what happens with depression is that in reality 60% of the patients referred for delirium are misdiagnosed by the referring physician as depression. The patient is lethargic, the patient is slowed down. I was working in a hospital this weekend and I had exactly a case like this. Somebody referred to us for palliative care, referred with some depression. The patient was clearly having hypoactive delirium. Anxiety and manic episodes and also potentially akathisia, extrapyramidal reactions. Now in the nursing home, delirium can be to, due to multiple causes. An MI, a fracture, a UTI, urinary retention, are multiple afferent pathways that when the brain is not in good shape create a very a very stereotypical response basically agitation and delirium so we frequently have mixed syndromes delirium dementia depression and pain so <clears throat> what happens in the earlier brain in the brain of the person dying earlier we have tumor byproducts and host cytokines this is what we see in cancer and that means that all the other factors you have around are contributors. But even in the absence of any of the other factors, delirium will still happen in our patients. In this first study we did, we consented 67 patients to enter a study. They signed the consent and we were surprised to find that 20% of them were quite cognitively impaired. And that raised the point about, first of all, I wonder what they signed, what did they know about the word signing, but it raised a very important issue. We felt that all of them were cognitively intact and we had missed the fact that these people were cognitively impaired. So we then started doing further studies and we found that 83% of the patients who died in the palliative care unit had delirium before they died. And one third of them had an episode that improved. Now with the most important finding for us was this, 23% of the time the doctor and 20% of the time the nurse missed an episode of delirium when it was already happening. Then we found that people who died had a higher frequency of delirium and here you can see the graph, those who develop delirium have a trend to die, those who don't have a trend to be discharged alive. Now, in further studies, one we just completed recently at MD Anderson, again, when you look at the days of death, the average memorial delirium rate assessment scale of those who died uh, was progressively increasing. Those whose, um, who, who had an, um, an average MDAS that did not deteriorate uh, were discharged alive. In this study from Peter Lawler, we see what we were discussing before, uh, the, the Kaplan-Meier survival of those who develop delirium is much worse than those who don't, even if the episode of delirium improves. So it happens to 85% of the cancer patients before death. It happens to the majority of the patients with many other diseases before death, including renal failure, liver failure, CHF, COPD, is multi-causal. And it is important to remember that 80% of our brain is GABA. 80% of our brain is trying to stop us from doing things or saying things and therefore the initial stages lead to a disinhibition of symptoms and emotions. And so the patient might exacerbate the expression of pain, the expression of discomfort, even the emotions and that might be the initial sign of delirium. This person developed delirium 
and the person had no pain before and no pain after the episode of delirium. During the episode of delirium, the assessment was done by the nurse and the relative, and the patient was interpreted as having a lot of pain and received a lot of extra doses of morphine. This other patient was referred to us at MD Anderson a few years ago, and the person was referred because of very severe pain, and we saw the patient urgently referred by the new oncologist, and we found all these symptoms. You can see in the ESAS, very high level of symptoms in the patient. We diagnosed delirium related to hypercalcemia. The person received a decrease in the dose of opioids, a, a shot of soledronate and normal saline, and look at the ESAS 48 hours later, symptom expression improved dramatically as the delirium cleared. Now, when you look at hematological consults, they're much more likely to have delirium. It's much more frequent than in the solid tumor environment. And those patients survive less. When you look at ICU referrals to palliative care, the frequency is just enormous. In our uh, data, 81% of the of patients referred had delirium. Now, the good news is in the ICU setting, the resolution is significantly higher, but unfortunately, they are very common. And a good number of those who had, even those who had delirium, uh, were discharged home successfully. When we look at the outcome of, of patients um, with delirium uh, admitted to the palliative care unit, we found that almost 60% of the palliative care unit admissions have delirium. Uh, and then, of those who had delirium, uh, the majority of them had it upon admission, but also some of them develop it after they are admitted. Now, 26% of the delirium episodes reverse, but it's interesting to know that the delirium that happens after the patient is admitted to a PCU, so a patient who is admitted with no delirium and develops delirium has much lower reversal and worse survival. What that means is we are able to reverse delirium related to other factors, maybe opioid-induced neurotoxicity, maybe psychoactive drugs, but the ones that have happened under our care, that is very likely the delirium of end of life. That's why reversibility is less. Now, when we looked at the um, um, uh, Cox model for survival in patients with or without delirium, we found three factors, having hematological diagnosis, having worse performance status, and developing delirium were the three main predictors for death in a palliative care unit. There you have, again, delirium and admission or later, and no delirium, and it's a repeated message of different series that were showing that delirium is consistently associated with West Pro uh, sur survival. Now, this is a study from Martin de la Cruz, and what we found is that of the patients who were referred to us, out in the inpatient palliative care setting, 61% of the cases of delirium were missed by the referring team. And 67 of those who had a reversible delirium were missed. So routine screening is very important because by the time we get a patient sent to us, very frequently the primary team, if there is delirium, they really missed it. Now, this study by Peter Lolo showed that about 42% of the patients referred uh, had delirium. It's about the same data we saw many years ago in our team. Now, 50% of the episodes were reversible. So although it's common, it can also be reversed at least for some number of episodes. Now, reversibility is usually associated with drugs, and there you can see that when there were psychoactive drugs, including opiates, dehydration, so people coming from home dehydrated, those are predictors of reversibility. And when we looked at patients seen at the emergency center, this is a recent study by Ahmed Al Sayem, and he found that delirium was found in uh, a number of patients, and again, the doctor diagnosed, even knowing that a nurse was going to go and assess that patient, 40% of the cases of delirium were missed uh, in those doctors. So this probably shows that the delirium uh, missing is even more frequent because these people had been considerably pre-warned that somebody was going to go and assess cognition, and still so, uh, in 40% of the cases, the, the, the emergency room team missed the, the, the case. Now, when we look at the 
CAM versus physician diagnosis of delirium, there you can see that there was a significant number of uh, cases that unfortunately were, uh, were missed uh, by the physician and diagnosed by the CAM. So when we look at the characteristics of those patients that, that were um, having or not delirium, the most significant factor it continues to be always uh, performance status. People with low performance status, people who come to the emergency center with poor performance status are much more likely to have delirium as compared to those who come with better performance status. One of the things we learned was that recall could happen and that was very important to us. We used to tell all the patients that delirium was not going to be associated with any recall and then we went and asked 99 patients who had recovered from delirium within the last three days uh, if they remembered and we were shocked to find that 74% of them had delirium recall. We also found that 81% of them felt it was distressing and of the ones who had no recall of the delirium, still 42% felt that missing those couple of days or three days from their memory was distressing. But as you can see, the level of distress was quite dramatically different. We also found that the person who was closer to the patient was their family caregiver. And uh, there you can see the reason why probably there is conflict around delirium. That is that when we asked the patient and the family caregiver if all these events had occurred in the last three days, the CAPA agreement was significant. When we asked the bedside nurse, the CAPA agreement was generally not significant, and when we asked the doctor, it was also not significant. So this suggests that the family member is the one that can see all these elements a little bit better than we can, and it might explain why they sometimes might be upset about the way we decide to use or not medications. So, there are different settings. You can have postoperative, medical, surgical, critical care, and cancer. You can have old versus young, non-cancer versus cancer, and you can also have this final comment of reversible versus terminal. So, I think we're now getting to the point in which we're starting to characterize delirium a little bit more than just making the yes or no diagnosis. Now, we have to treat the reversible causes, drugs, infection, metabolic, structural. And then we also have to apply palliation because palliation can be including non-pharmacological measures and pharmacological measures that I will be addressing in the next few minutes. Now, one of the important reversible uh, syndromes is opioid-induced neurotoxicity. And that is a patient who accompanies sedation, cognitive failure, hallucinosis, or delirium. Myoclonus is an important component. And hyperalgesia or allodynia, the person has massive aggravation of the pain syndrome. And when the patient presents with these findings in the context of high dose, prolonged time, borderline cognition, or decreased glomerular filtration, we can suspect that the opioid is playing a role. And so the risk factors are high opioid dose, prolonged exposure, and some of these clinical factors that elevate the risk. So which drug do you choose when you change the opioid? The reality is delirium and opioid-induced neurotoxicity, all opioids can cause it. So opioid rotation works mostly by eliminating the offending drug. If you think in that delirious patient that the opioid might be related, you've already made a great advancement and now you change the type of opioid and you are on the way to resolution. When we first uh, looked at this, we found that 73% of the patients improved after making uh, doing this opioid rotation. And at the beginning also we found that pain improved and that probably made sense because probably there was an, el an element of hyperalgesia that when we did this study, hyperalgesia was not that recognized in our patients, then we learned that that's probably what we were resulting. Now, we also found that the dose of opioid, even though the pain was better, the, the MEDD dose of opioid was lower after the rotation. Uh, so after that, now it's a very recognized syndrome. Rotation is fully established. There is good translational research supporting that we do it. And then, of course, we have this issue of methadone being an interesting drug because of its NMDA receptor antagonism. Uh, 
Now, when you rotate from an opioid to another, because your patient is a bit neurotoxic, you find that, first of all, if you look at all these dots, there's a lot of interpersonal variation. But overall, over a wide MEDD dose ratio, you find that the ratio of, for example, morphine to hydromorphone is around 0.2, and it stays reasonably fixed. When you rotate to methadone, things change. And the patient that looks safe to rotate because they're in a higher dose happen to be the ones who will respond relatively more to methadone and potentially get into more trouble during the rotation. Now, some things we need to be aware that might lead us to think about delirium. Uh, first of all, it can be misinterpreted as pain. Chemical coping and somatization are three things that can lead to multiple doses at night. But a patient who received multiple doses during night might be somebody who's sundowning and might be expressing more agitation. So we need to suspect that, in addition to chemical coping and somatization, that that might be one of the diagnoses in these patients. How do we prevent opioid-induced neurotoxicity? Well, look at the factors, uh, you know, look at accumulation, and also look at how you can uh, improve brain reserve. Uh, for example, eliminating anticholinergic burden in that patient as much as possible. Try to do a multidimensional pain assessment and identify risk factors. How do we manage a patient in delirium? First, the most important thing, as we discussed so far, is diagnose it by screening. And the patient who needs screening is the one that looks great, not the one that already looks delirious or confused, because then you already have suspicion. It's the one that looks great, the one that needs it. Look for the reversible causes, control the environment, pharmacological, bedside and nurse and doctor education. Remember, this nurse and this doctor who are referring you the patient missed the diagnosis. So unless we go back and educate them, they will not understand why we're proposing to do a certain number of things. And finally, remember that we need to educate the family uh, of the patient. Now, we used to use the many mental state examination, then we started getting bills, and we decided, that's it, we're going to move into the MDAS of our friend Bill Breitbart, that is a wonderful tool, and of course, to implement that at MD Anderson Cancer Center, uh, it was not easy because it's our arch enemy memorial, so uh, for a long time we called it the MD Anderson scale, and once we had that accepted, then we kind of came off the closet and we said that it was a memorial. But it's a very simple scale. You can do it uh, quite easily. And uh, a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain can learn how to do it with one single teaching session. And here you can have the accuracy of diagnosis after one 45-minute lecture and simulated cases showing that really it's a very simple tool to use and it gives you a number, contrary to the CAM and other tools, it gives you a number that allows you to follow up that patient. There are other tools. And I would say that whatever the tool you choose, by making the choice of a tool, you made a wise decision to start screening these patients. Now, what about the drug treatment? Well, it's important to remember that drugs are unable to reverse delirium. The goal of using drugs is to eliminate the hyperactive features that are associated with suffering, the delusions, the hallucinations, the psychomotor agitation, not only suffering for the patient, but suffering for the family. And finally, when these are not working, sedation might be necessary when everything else fails. So this Cochrane uh, review says that basically uh, more research is needed. I have kind of stopped reading a little bit of the Cochrane reviews because I already know what they conclude, that more research is needed. But in this one, they were quite clear that we needed this. And this is a classic study done by, by uh, Bill Bright, but it was the first really uh, study done on patients where a, a pharmacological attempt was made. And he randomized patients with HIV delirium to haloperidol, chlorpromazine, and lorazepam. He, mentioned, he measured the, the most common tools. At that time, he did not have yet his MDAS fully delivered. And here you can have the doses of um, drugs that were used. And here you have the response. The lorazepam group was dropped out of the study because of uh, not, not major improvement. The other two improved the, uh, the symptoms in the delirium rating scale. Now, what about the pharmacological management? Well, haloperidol is done 
IV, sub-Q or PO, it can be given regular and breakthrough, and there's a wide dose and perhaps a little bit less extrapyramidal effects in cancer patients, maybe because they already have considerable autonomic failure due to their cancer, cachexia, etc. So the onset is fast, and basically the time to peak is, is what you see there. It is essentially a dopamine blocker. It has therefore extrapyramidal effects, and there is some rumor and, and some evidence about mild QT prolongation. However, we do use it IV. And so, should every cancer patient be on regular haloperidol? Well, in general, hyperactive and mixed, yes. In cancer, 80% of the syndromes are mixed. Even if a patient looks great today, and the patient is able to answer questions, remember about the fluctuating level of delirium, and ask the nurse or the family member if the patient was agitated last night. Because if the patient was agitated last night, then you are not seeing a hypoactive, you are seeing a mixed delirium. In pure hypo, there's no evidence, and maybe you need to leave a PRN dose in case it changes into mixed. Now, what are the equivalent haloperidol doses? And here you can see that we do use a very low dose in our patients, and that might be one of the reasons why the daily dose, even used by palliative care experts, uh, is, is still quite low as compared to what has been proposed. In the hyperactivists, in the ones that are in the higher, the dose is a bit higher. Now, we try to understand how many times does haloperidol fail and we did this study following up 266 patients with delirium, and we found that really 77% of them were controlled well with haloperidol alone, and 23% required a neuroleptic rotation. And then, of course, unfortunately, as you require a rotation, the response rate has a trend to deteriorate. So what we found in this case then is 71% responded uh, when we used first-line haloperidol, when you rotate to another neuroleptic, most of the cases are to chlorpromazine, the response rate drops to about 35%. So it's about, in the second neuroleptic, the response now is half of what happens in the first series. The benzyl story, we know that we do use them for sure for palliative sedation. And this Cochrane uh, study basically found that there is um, there are limitations in what we understand about benzodiazepines, and um, so basically, what is the evidence, what are the randomized controlled trials about drugs? Well, there's a number of studies. Uh, not all of them are applicable to palliative care, but this was a geriatric population with delirium, and the patients were randomized to uh, haloperidol, olanzapine, and uh, control, and they observed that there uh, was an improvement with the pharmacological teams. Uh, you can see that the reduction and also the time to improvement that was significantly worse with the control as compared to the two pharmacological groups. This is a Chinese study randomizing patients to olanzapine, haloperidol, and control. Now, this was reported in Cochrane as placebo, but of course, it was, uh, it was uh, the limitation was, was the language, and when we had uh, Chinese colleagues read it to us, we found that this, this randomized control trial that is quoted a lot was not really against a control, a placebo, it was around no medication that was the control group. Now, there were comparisons between haloperidol and risperidone, and basically using uh, the MDAS and other tools, and there you can see the improvement in the patients uh, over time, you can see the drop, but you can also see that uh, they didn't find much difference. There were comparisons between olanzapine and risperidone, two of the new generation neuroleptics, and in that, in that study, again, no major difference between the two and considerable improvement because these studies were done on medical patients that had a higher level of reversibility in their delirium. Um, this study compared haloperidol, olanzapine, and risperidone, and uh, again, the three agents resulted in significant improvement in the uh, delirium uh, in these patients, and there was no uh, significant difference between the three agents. Um, 
when you look at the dose of the of the drugs was not very high as you can see fortunately they did not use a big dose the this study compared quetiapine versus placebo of course placebo not a not a drug and basically what they observed is that again quetiapine was superior to placebo in improving the uh, the severity of the delirium rating scale and there you can see some of the dropping in the uh, treated versus placebo group. This other study in critical care medicine compared quetiapine against placebo and once more you see that there was a significant improvement in quetiapine as compared to placebo. Uh, <clears throat> this is the uh, the actual time uh, in uh, of delirium that dropped dramatically in the quetiapine as compared to the placebo group. Presidex dexmedemobibidin is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist that is exciting. Unfortunately, it has a number of side effects that make it hard for us to manage outside the context of telemetry. Uh, we are now trying to see if we can transfer some of that uh, use into the palliative care unit, but it's an exciting drug. There are good studies in the ICU setting, randomizing patients between uh, Presidex and lorazepam, and also midazolam, and you can see there the general trends are that uh, there is a trend towards improvement, for example, in this case, in the time to extubation in the patients receiving dexmedetomidine versus midazolam. There's a, another study on patients randomized to uh, Presidex versus haloperidol, and basically um, the question there is uh, there seems to be a trend to use more of this agent that has a totally different mechanism of action in the ICU setting. Remember, we said that this is a big problem because 81% of the consults we get from the ICU setting actually have some element of delirium. Uh, now, this study is of interest because they were randomizing patients to haloperidol, risperidone, or placebo in an adult palliative care unit. It's a multi-center study. They used relatively low doses and midazolam for rescue. The interesting part of the study is that risperidone and haloperidol were reported as causing worse delirium-specific symptoms and worse survival associated with risperidone and haloperidol. And that's been a comment that has been made in the past, in a, particularly mostly in the geriatric population, uh, that suggests that perhaps there might be some problem associated with the use of neuroleptics. Now, in this case, the main limitation is delirium-specific symptoms is not a very useful term because we know that disorientation, inattention, a confusion, lethargy are not likely to be improved by the pharmacological management. It is mostly the agitation, so using tools like the RAS agitation tools would help us better test uh, how these drugs can work. So this is the study published in JAMA Internal Medicine that was uh, I was referring to, and they randomized patients to these three groups, placebo, haloperidol, or risperidone, and the patients were uh, quite older than other conditions, but they were in their 70s. Their MDAS was very mild. They did not really have these bad agitations we see in, in, the, in the units, and the dose of opiates was rather low. Uh, in fact, uh, a significant proportion of patients were not on opiates. So it's slightly different from what you might see in other palliative care environments, but they observed these uh, characteristics of worse uh, apparent response when using risperidone or haloperidol as compared to placebo, and this is uh, a small difference but a significant difference in the Kaplan-Meier for survival. So what do we say about delirium? Well, prognosis made might be useful. It might be postoperative, it might be medical, and it also might be the terminal delirium, the one associated with the end of life. So uh, when we look at Peter Lawler's paper uh, that I showed you before, we know that these are important factors. Dehydration and psychoactive drugs are reversible causes of delirium. Uh, we uh, just conducted a study in which we randomized patients who were refractory to haloperidol uh, and were still agitated after haloperidol to one dose of lorazepam, single dose, or one dose of placebo. And we observed that the response to lorazepam was 
significantly better than the response to placebo in these patients who presented with agitation at that point. Now, they also responded to placebo, but please remember, this is haloperidol plus placebo, not placebo alone. So the agitation did better, but it did significantly better and fast when you added one single dose of haloperidol, of, of, of um, lorazepam. And because lorazepam has a long half-life, you can see that over hours, the response remains stable. This shows you a little bit of the response uh, in individual patients that might be of some interest. You can see that the ones who are in uh, white are the curves of the ones who uh, responded more than the ones who actually received the um, uh, lorazepam and the other ones were up and down, sometimes lower, sometimes higher. And there you have the two groups. Now, what can we say about persistent agitation? The total dose was um, about the same for um, haloperidol equivalent daily dose. Um, there was a difference uh, after the treatment favoring the um, the haloperidol in the lorazepam group. There was also a difference in the number of extra doses. And of course, there was a little bit more sedation in the group that received lorazepam versus the group that received only haloperidol, suggesting that you had to use a little bit less neuroleptic in the group that received uh, lorazepam. And this is a blinded opinion of the caregiver at the bedside and the blinded opinion of the nurse about improvement and you can see that it was really favorable towards lorazepam and haloperidol probably simply reflecting on the RAS improvement that was more in this group. There was no difference in survival in the two groups. So uh, we can try that in a single dose for patients uh, with a refractory agitation and um, given to the right individuals in the right region and the right time might be useful and of course, it's a single center study. We are now conducting a second study trying to validate what happens if you give it in multiple doses. Remember that neuroleptic rotation might be necessary in some patients and, uh, and that when the patient does not respond to haloperidol, rotating to another might be good. Now, we use chlorpromazine, but there's no data at all to guide us into which is the best alternative. Uh, sometimes what leads us to give the treatment in these patients might be a little bit more our distress and our reactive therapy than the patient's impact. So when we looked at delirium recall, we found that reactive therapy was more common. That is what I mean by that is you see more distress, you treat. Ideally, effective therapy would be you treat more and you reduce distress. And then ineffective therapy would be you treat more, there's no difference. So uh, this is the ideal scenario. You treat and the higher dose is associated with a reduction in distress. And this is what we saw by the nurses and the specialists. The nurses and the specialists treated with a higher dose when they felt more distressed. And the doctors too. There was no association between those and patient reported distress and caregiver distress. So that's probably guiding our pharmacological management at this point. So early interventions might be useful. Now, universal environmental control is important. Avoiding la uh, no light or excessive light, loud noises, a sitter at the bedside using the cell phone or the TV on, stimulation, large clock and calendar, avoid, uh, you know, use familiar sounds or smells and do not ask for consent or enter a debate once you know the brain is not working. So uh, what do we do with the bedside doctor? Well, first of all, make the diagnosis. Need to search for major reversible causes. Major change in medications might be necessary. It's very important, this issue of disinhibition, because the patient might be expressing more, and then the primary team thinks that this is increased nociceptive input. In fact, what is happening is you have increased expression. The brain has lost GABA, the pain is getting, the patient is getting disinhibited in the expression, but also the patient gets disinhibited in emotions. They can get emotional with their own families. They can get um, aggressive with their own families. Not always opioid-induced uh, and then haloperidol is, you know, a, a very good drug. Now, bedside nurse support because there is a lot of distress. And what about the family? Well, 
the family needs to understand that the brain is failing and that we use some metaphors like, for example, the brain doesn't really have to have the disease, it doesn't have to have the cancer, but it's a very sensitive engine. When the blood starts carrying poor quality fuel, then the brain starts to not work very well. It's very common. We need to normalize delirium. That's the way we will die. And so we need to normalize delirium and always universally convey the poor prognosis and never commit the error of saying, oh, the episode is now gone, we are okay. Because the episode, if the patient has chronic progressive illness, will come back. Remember the disinhibition of symptoms and emotions because the family might feel tremendously guilty about this person who's moaning and groaning or who's shouting, I want to go home, traitors, and explaining to them the disinhibition is important. Remember the control of the environment. And finally, this is very distressing for them. So expressive supportive counseling is universal. So with the patient, brief conversations, avoid confrontation and excessive stimulation, and reassure. With the family, monitor behavior, explain the mechanisms, reassure regarding physical suffering, and remember, delirium, especially mixed and hyperactive, is a major source of conflict with our clinical teams. And finally, with regards to staff, difference between pain and agitated delirium, aggressive behavior by the patient, and the importance of having a consistent team approach to describe what they're observing. Can neuroleptic be harmful? We discussed already this issue of this study that is uh, important to discuss. And can multi-component interventions help? Well, yes, this study by Sharon Inoue showed that usual care might be wonderful. The one limitation we have for all these interventions is it is very limited the number of facilities we have where we can subject the patients to this type of management that would include no pharmacological management. And also, we need to remember that occasionally delirium becomes life-threatening to the patient and family because of its severity. So their studies are exciting. Unfortunately, there haven't been too many studies able to replicate this wonderful study. What is the research? It's one of the most devastating and common syndromes. There's very little research, unfortunately. There's tremendous need for evidence and great opportunities for research. I'd like to conclude saying that delirium will develop in 80% or more palliative care patients. It is a source of distress and conflict. It is severely underdiagnosed, and it's important that when we are high level of suspicion, the best management is to eliminate precipitating factors, neuroleptic and dexmethodomidine, particularly in the ICU, are the main drugs, and communication and education is a major intervention. So at this point, that was what I brought for you, but of course, I will be delighted to address any comments or questions uh, that you might have about this, uh, this uh, complex problem. Thank you, Dr. Guerrero. That was really excellent. We'll give you all a chance to type in your questions. Uh, we have a few minutes to take questions. There's actually a, a theme in several questions here. Let me ask you, this is about the difference between terminal delirium and reversible delirium. I guess, why don't I just ask you to expand a little bit about uh, how one manages uh, the diagnosis of terminal delirium, uh, my transition from the treatment with neuroleptics to an alternative treatment, how you inform the family. We have several, several viewers who are worried that uh, working to reverse delirium when the patient is obviously dying is not in anyone's best interest. Yes, thank you very much. One of the questions is, how do we diagnose the terminal stage? Because diagnosing the delirium is re relatively simple. Once we do the, the, the MDAS or the tool that you choose, you make the diagnosis of delirium. The second point is, is this person now what we call actively dying? Well, there are circumstances when that's easy to do. You have uh, tendon retraction, mandibular breathing, loss of nasolabial fold, uh, uh, bronchial secretions, what we call the death rattle, peripheral cyanosis, no urine output, low systolic. Those are signs that clearly tell us that that delirium is happening in the context of signs of impending death within less than three days. And those patients who present those findings have a survival of less than three days any of those findings has an 80% or more specificity for that. Now, what happens when none of those are present? Well, when none of those are present, we cannot say that the person is not getting to the last three days of life, but 
we are unable to say that the person is getting to the last three days of life. So what we try in those cases is to figure out if there are contributing factors that could be mitigated. And common ones include, as we were discussing, opioids, other anticholinergic burden, occasionally ciprofloxacin, occasionally dehydration, and then see if in those patients who are not in the context of end of life, we can um, obtain a reversal that sometimes can give the patient and family considerable period of time. So I think those are the two issues that we have to diagnose. Is the person having delirium? And second, is the person actively dying? Uh, our ability to diagnose end of life within the context of many days, weeks, unfortunately, continues to be a little bit limited. So using uh, our, our bedside skills and tools such as the palliative prognosis score, we use the PPS less than 20, those can help in making decisions. Ultimately, also, it depends on the cost, meaning by that, the costing comfort for that patient. If aggressive management of contributing factors requires the person to be transported to a facility to undergo imaging, undergo blood work, and so on, well, that per se, the transportation and the removal from your comfortable setting might be enough reason to forego some of those investigations. And I think keeping the communication with the, with the families is, is usually very, very useful. Uh, here's a related question, Eduardo. Uh, it's about treatment of dehydration with um, a fluid trial. Uh, I'm aware that they use uh, the a trial of fluids is controversial in the setting of delirium um, in, associated with advanced illness. What are your thoughts? Yes, of course, and, and that's an important point because when the person is getting to the end of life, they will end up getting delirious, and then um, do we always have to hydrate everybody who's a, at the end of life? And we did a randomized control trial on this a number of years ago, about four or five years ago, and the randomized control trial showed that uh, giving in those patients who were clearly getting to the end of life uh, um, hydration of 1,000 cc's versus placebo hydration of 100 cc's did not seem to make a, a, a significant difference in, in their survival, in delirium, and so on. So the question is, what happens when somebody gets delirious and dehydrated and they are not uh, in, that, uh, in that stage. Would you give uh, some water? And there's a traditional uh, finding. Uh, if we die in an acute care facility in the United States, we are going to die with an IV getting hydration. Uh, if we die with hospice care at home, we are going to die with no hydration. So that's what I usually call the wet death or the dry death. Mm -hmm. The reality is there probably is excessive use of fluids, and in fact, in our acute palliative care unit at MD Anderson, we reduce fluids dramatically in our patients. Uh, there's probably an excessive use of uh, hydration in the acute care facilities, but there's also probably a significant under-use of hydration for some patients who might benefit uh, to keep them feeling well and going a little bit longer in the community. It's important to remember that hydration is not a high-tech procedure. There's a number of papers and a couple that we brought to ASCO Palliative this year with a group from Chile and, and a number of other studies that are clearly showing that you can do gravity-based hydration. Dr. Mariberta Vidal from our group just did a study here in Houston, and we did uh, two or three more. You can put a sub-Q needle, give a 69-cent bag of saline by gravity or by sitting on the bag, and that can give you uh, 500 cc twice a day or keep it dropping, and then it doesn't have to be associated with using IVs, home health services, infusion pumps, or any, uh, anything like that. And then you can do a therapeutic trial of a day or two. If the patient considerably improves, feels good, then you can continue. If not, you can stop it. When we asked relatives of patients who died that had done the hydration, their feeling was that it had been very useful. And I think it's one way they feel they are helping the patient. So I would say occasional therapeutic trials might be appropriate. And you, you need to figure out how you can do it without being expensive, because hydration does not need to be expensive when you give it sub to There are several questions here about the use of drugs. Um, the first one is, 
What are your thoughts on the use of methylphenidate for hypoactive delirium? This is a wonderful question and a wonderful point. Uh, many years ago, Bruno Gagnon uh, from uh, Montreal did a study in which he gave a small dose of, uh, of methylphenidate to patients with hypoactive delirium, and they saw some improvement. The one, the one important thing to consider is the following. There are good randomized control trials. We did some of them showing that when a person has sedation, when they have considerable sleepiness, for example, induced by opioids, uh, methylphenidate is effective at reducing that sedation. The study from uh, Bruno Gagnon is suggestive, but we need to be very, very careful that we carefully choose the patients and we give short-acting methylphenidate in short therapeutic trials. Because one of the risks is that you might increase arousal and modify what is a hypoactive delirium into a mixed or hyperactive delirium. So as long as uh, we are convinced that we're dealing with a hypoactive, and we need to remember that hypoactive are only 20%. Then, if you find a patient with those characteristics, then a short trial of methylphenidate to see if you get more um, arousal and more alertness and more energy might, might perhaps be appropriate. Here's another interesting question for you. Um, the, the finding that recall occurs in a high proportion of patients, does that suggest earlier use of lorazepam in an effort to produce amnesia? Well, uh, that's an important point. What, what is associated with the distress of recall? Uh, and, and, and then, um, and also non-recall. Um, I, I thought when we published this paper that it would raise a lot of interest in conducting more research about the distress, and we did not see much of it. Uh, so the, the question uh, asked by the, uh, by, by the participant is, uh, is there, there is clearly an amnestic effect in benzodiazepines uh, before surgical procedures, endoscopic procedures, and even in uh, chemotherapy-induced vomiting, where patients who have a lot of anticipatory nausea and so on, or even vomiting, might have less recollection because they were receiving uh, lorazepam. Could you induce an amnestic effect in these patients who are going to go through these episodes of, um, um, of uh, hallucinations and uh, psychomotor agitation and maybe even disinhibition? This is an, an important question for research. We are asking patients. The problem is that because of the nature of our studies in the palliative care unit, the reversibility in our patients is low. And so we are unable to answer that question with the sample sizes and with the studies we're doing, but, but the participant asks a very important question about are we able to reduce the suffering if we use it a bit earlier and then the person improves and they have less recollection of, a, of an uncomfortable moment. So staying on the topic of drugs, there's a question here about the use of haloveridol versus the newer uh, neuroleptics, um, olanzapine and risperidone and ketiapine. And the question is, if cost was not an issue, would the characteristics of the newer drugs lead you to use them instead of haloperidol? And this is an important question. Um, I, I, I summarized some of the randomized controlled trials, and the question uh, is, um, unfortunately, the newer neuroleptics have not demonstrated higher efficacy as compared to uh, haloperidol. So, their use might be linked to situations such as, for example, uh, people who have a significant risk or episodes in the past of extrapyramidal toxicity and you want to reduce that, uh, or if you are thinking about the possibility of using it for other purposes uh, down the line, such as uh, nausea or appetite uh, for olanzapine. But if you're using it for the management of an episode of mixed or agitated delirium, at this point, there is no evidence to justify uh, changing into the so-called uh, new neuroleptics, and it's, it's a decision for, for each group. I personally like the idea of being able to give haloperidol subcutaneously, something that the other agents are not able, and so if my patient is doing reasonably well and I'm unable to stop it, and now they have trouble with swallowing, I can move the drug to the sub-Q route 
and that's something that the newer neuroleptics unfortunately do not allow, except olanzapine that we have published a study that shows that the IEM preparation can be given safely and absorbed sub-Q. One more question about drug therapy. Um, it, the, the questioner says, I'm concerned about calling patients haloperidol non-responders unless you've explored a higher doses. What's the criteria for calling somebody a non-responder? This is a very important question. That is, what is the top dose? And we have seen papers ranging from 8 milligrams to 20 or 30 milligrams a day as the top dose for these agents. Uh, regrettably, the dose that allows us to say that the patient is not responding is not, is not very well determined. To us, a few days of a good dose, meaning 2 milligrams every uh, 4 to 6 hours, meaning a 10, 12 milligrams a day, would tell us that unfortunately the success rate is not going to be there. And the big question is, do we rotate or do we do like we do with some with some antidepressants? Do we do augmentation? Do we add another neuroleptic to the one we're using or do we change to another one? So far, we mostly change partially because they share some side effects, but it might be possible that augmentation might be, might be perhaps a better approach in some patients. Here's a, a multi-part question about differences in incidence or prevalence of uh, delirium, Eduardo. Now, the questioner wants to know about any data suggesting that there may be demographic differences, and uh, the questioner says age, race, um, or, uh, or ethnicity as a determinant of uh, the, the, the tendency to develop delirium. Um, and then another question about prior, prior neurologic uh, events like stroke, whether or not any of those are predictive of the onset of delirium. Yes, thank you very much. That's a very important question. And the answer would be, yes, there's some clear data that, um, that age is a a, a predictor of delirium. There's more common delirium in the elderly patients and that organic brain uh, disease being cancer or, um, or stroke or um, brain injury increase significantly the risk for delirium in, in our patients. So yes, there are uh, patient characteristics that should lead us to be more suspicious that that patient is likely to develop delirium. Well, that's it for the questions from our viewers. I'll, I'll ask one question and then we'll close, and that relates to the challenge of research. I mean, you pointed out in a study from like a century ago that we're offering, often getting uh, consent from patients who actually would score in a cognitively impaired range. And if you're doing research on delirium, you're obviously looking for patients who have cognitive problems, including those you just mentioned who may have brain injury preceding uh, the development of a delirious episode. So the question is, how do you do research with um, ethical processes to gain consent, uh, that respecting the fact that patients may not have capacity to consent when they become delirious? Yes, and that's a wonderful question, Russ. There's, there's two main mechanisms. One is if we see a population where the risk is very, very high, like close to end of life, we might obtain consent in a patient who has no delirium so that we can proceed with the study if they agree when the delirium occurs. That would be one possibility. The other one is when we identify their power of attorney, their proxy, the one who is involved with them, and we know that they have the best interest of the patients and delirium has already occurred, then obtain the consent of their proxy for participation into the study. The, the challenge of conducting research in this population is, uh, is, is, is huge because um, uh, the problem of finding those patients uh, when the uh, delirium has not still occurred is that once they are in the inpatient uh, facility, that is where most of the research takes place, a large proportion of our patients who do not look delirious are already delirious. So you raise a very important point. This is a very difficult area to do research on, and I think that's one of the areas where palliative care units 
can be leading the way because we have a great group of trained nurses, a very wonderful group of chaplains, social workers, counselors, and then patients and their proxy can feel very safe in participation as compared to uh, studies conducted maybe in the loneliness of your home or in places where the level of acuity of care is less, like the nursing home or even the general hospital ward. Well, that's, uh, that's our webinar for today. I want to thank Dr. Eduardo Barrera for an extraordinary talk and sharing his expertise in this area. I want to thank our audience for participating. I want to remind everybody to complete your webinar evaluations and also help us plan future events. And also let you know that the next webinar that will be presented by the MGHS Institute will be an interdisciplinary case conference. An 83-year-old woman with dementia and weight loss it will be moderated by yours truly and will have an interdisciplinary team discussing a difficult case. And that will take place on Thursday, November 30th at 12.30 p.m. Thank you all for your attention and good evening.